You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vows that this is only the beginning. Afghanistan's twin curses of plentiful earthquakes and absent preparation, and why are constructive good-faith conversations about immigration so unusual? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Charles Hecker and Lynn O'Donnell will discuss the day's big stories. We'll have the latest from Tel Aviv. And as campaigning in Poland's general election enters its final week, we'll hear from the author Yaroslav Koish. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risks, and by Lynn O'Donnell, Columnist for Foreign Policy Magazine. Hello to you both. Hi. Good evening. Uh, We will have more from both of you shortly, but we will start in Israel, where in the last few hours, Defence Minister Yoav Gallant has announced a total siege of Gaza, threatening to cut off all food, fuel, electricity and water to the two million people who live there. It is the latest in a series of swiftly escalating responses to surprise attacks on Israel by Hamas on Saturday. At least 800 people were killed, thousands injured and dozens believed kidnapped. More than 560 people have since been killed in retaliatory Israel strikes on Gaza. I'm joined first of all from Tel Aviv by Alison K. Sommer, a journalist at Haaretz. Um, Alison, I know it's very early into whatever this is going to become, but is there an idea emerging of what Israel's plan is? Netanyahu has also said we are going to change the Middle East. Do we know how he wants to do that? We absolutely do not how know how, but we know that for sure Israel will not stand for Middle East in which what happened on Saturday um, could occur. Uh, if you'd spoken to me 15 minutes ago, the assessment of uh, the number of Israeli dead would have been 700. It just jumped 200 to 900. More and more bodies are being uh, found, identified, deaths being confirmed. Um, it's been said pretty dramatically that uh, it's the day that more Jews were killed on one single day since the Holocaust. So um, the Israelis want to hear a message like that, that um, something is going to change radically um, to not allow something like this to happen again. And I think that's why you're seeing the overwhelmingly powerful response that's uh, that's happening in Gaza right now. What sense do you have of how much support the person of Benjamin Netanyahu is going to have from Israelis for whatever comes next? As we've discussed before, he has for weeks uh, been the subject of huge protests uh, by Israelis against his attempts to reform Israel's judiciary, more or less in his own image. Uh, And there must surely be some blame attached to his government for the intelligence and security failures that allowed these attacks by Hamas. Is he going to be the person that most Israelis want leading them at this moment? Oh, there is overwhelming doubt and lack of faith, uh, both in this current government and in Benjamin Netanyahu, who you have to remember has been basically leading the country for the last decade. So if there's one person to point blame at for this calamity, for this gigantic failure, it's Benjamin Netanyahu. 
On the other hand, Israelis understand that this is not a time that they can afford to play politics, that this is not a time that they can stand divided. And as much as uh, Netanyahu is anathema to many Israelis, he is the leader of the country. And therefore, there's a call for the opposition leaders to come together in some sort of configuration with this government at least temporarily for this time in order to wage this war in some kind of a strong, united fashion. There's a feeling that there's no choice as much as many Israelis have very little faith in Netanyahu. We have seen those calls from Benny Gantz, uh, former IDF chief of staff, and from others for uh, some sort of national unity government. Do you get any sense yet of how enthused Netanyahu himself might be by that prospect? I, I was vaguely wondering myself if he might see here a chance to liberate himself uh, from the fairly eccentric hard right forces that he's had to ally himself with to build his current coalition. Unfortunately, I don't think he's going to seize that opportunity, um, considering that opportunity is being handed to him. Um, the Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid, even to a greater extent, want as a condition of coming into the government, um, not for these extreme parties to even leave the coalition, but they want Smotrich and Ben Gvir, Itamar Ben Gvir and Betzal Smotrich, the finance minister, and uh, who is also in, a minister in the defense ministry, and uh, Ben Gvir, who is the national security ministry. They want them to step away from their security portfolios because they don't feel like men like that should be in charge of security forces at a time like this. So they're not asking for them to leave the government. They're asking them to step aside from their security responsibilities in order for them to step in and be able to prosecute this war, which is going to be a war in a more reasonable, practical, moderate way. It does not seem like Netanyahu is willing to accept that offer. He sees his political survival as riding on these extreme far-right parties, and it does not seem like he is willing to bet his political future right now in order to bring the country together and unite them uh, to wage a war. He is perhaps trying to, you know, play his cards and see if he can get Gantz and or Lapid into his government without making any concessions in terms of his extreme right-wing partners. And and what kind of official communications are Israelis receiving from the government right now? I know obviously people have drawn comparisons with the, the 1973 October war, the Yom Kippur war, uh, in which almost 50 years to the day um, Israel was surprised by you know aggression from external forces and, and managed to, to rally to repel them. Is that being invoked at all? It's being invoked repeatedly. And some people are saying it's even a worst case scenario that they're saying that they're getting even less uh, direction and uh, feeling of confidence in their leaders and in their governments than uh, than Israel did in 1973. It's a much more difficult situation. Um, we didn't have in 1973 over 100 you know, women, children, elderly people, civilians being held hostage, having, you know, been grabbed from across the border by a terrorist organization. It was a conventional war back then. It was a conventional army. There were conventional prisoner of war um, rules being followed. So we're in a much worse fog of war and uncertain position. And there is um, much fewer uh, authoritative messages and helpfulness from this government, from the authorities to the families who have lost loved ones, to those who are still searching for missing families. Um, There's not enough response from the government and people are very angry, frustrated and upset.
And Alison, just finally, I, I was wondering if you could give our listeners just some idea of what the last two and a half days have been like for you and your colleagues at Haaretz. Where do you even begin to try covering a story like this, uh, not only as an Israeli newspaper, but as the, the foremost broadly liberal Israeli newspaper? I think everyone is focused right now on just their personal connections. Now, this is a very small country, and this is a vast, vast number of people who have been killed, wounded, and kidnapped. So everybody knows somebody. I have friends who are murdered in their home in a kibbutz in the south. My friend's son was murdered in the same uh, kibbutz in the south. All of my friends have their, uh, you know, children, their 20-something kids, you know, into their 30s um, being called up for reserve duty, widely um, uh, called up for reserve duty. My colleague, Amir Tibon, the diplomatic correspondent of Haaretz, was holed up in his home on a kibbutz for 12 hours on the Gaza border. And his father had to organize, his father, a former general, organized a command force to, uh, to rescue him. Um, so we Haaretz journalists are working. We've got an in-house psychologist who is uh, counseling anybody who needs help. So we're really living this war, you know, even as we're uh, we're covering it uh, the best we can. Alison Sommer at Haaretz, thank you as always for joining us. Let's bring our panel back in, uh, Lynn O'Donnell and Charles Hecker. Um, there is, of course, to say the very least, a lot going on here. But Charles, first of all, I, I want to start with your view of Hamas's motives here, because I am struggling to see from their perspective what they thought the end game was going to be. Because on the one hand, it's easy to understand Hamas's base motivation, which is a desire to exterminate the state of Israel and the Jewish people. But they must have known that after a stunt like this, the response will be an end to their organisation. Uh, you don't necessarily think that terrorist organizations think these things all the way through to a logical conclusion and all the way through to the end. And you're absolutely right to point out that this isn't going to win them too many friends around the world, um, although they do have their traditional sources of support. Hamas's motives, even though its founding documentation is for the destruction of the state of Israel, um, Hamas may have done this for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, they may have just wanted to burst the Israeli bubble. Mm -hmm. um, Israel is going, had been going through a period of, you know, it has long reestablished re itself as a tourist hotspot. It is now the start, the startup nation um, and a major global tech hub. Um, and maybe it was time to burst that bubble. Um, the other thing that Hamas might have wanted to do is to derail the Saudi-Israeli rapprochement, which they have probably successfully done. Um, it is difficult to see Saudi Arabia at the moment carrying on with the recognition of the state of Israel, at least at this moment, or for the foreseeable future. And, and you know, to your point and Allison's point about, you know, he, Netanyahu wants to change the Middle East. The Middle East is already changing. Mm. Um, and and Hamas is a driver of that change freshly today. Um, you know, the, the withdrawal of the United States as a global sheriff um, and something that was accelerated particularly in the Middle East during the Trump administration um, may have given Hamas the feeling that this was a moment, this was their moment, that they could have taken advantage of this. Um, and then finally, even though nobody has come to, in these early, early moments and hours and days, no one's come to any firm conclusion on Iran's role in all of this, um, the United States is broadly assuming that Iran is a driver behind this, particularly because of Saudi Arabia's moves towards Israel. And Hamas may have felt emboldened, if not directly supported, by Iran. Uh, 
Lynn, if you're looking at this now from Israel's point of view, and their, their rhetoric is fairly unmistakable, they do intend to destroy Hamas. Uh, and the, the latest report suggests that they have already struck 2,400 Hamas targets, or at least what the Israel Defense Forces are calling Hamas targets. Um, if you look at Israel's recent history, uh, or at least all of Israel's history, there is not much doubt about their intent. They will doubtless attempt to dismantle Hamas as far as possible. If necessary, you can imagine that they will hunt down Hamas leaders overseas where plenty of them are uh, in comfortable offices in Damascus and Doha and elsewhere. Um, But is anybody likely to discourage them from doing that at this point? Might even, and this is my own suspicion, the Saudis be quite secretly relieved to see the back of them? To see the back of Hamas? Mm. I think um, most reasonable people in the world would be glad to see the back of mm-hmm. Hamas. Um, they've really shown um, their true colours with this, if anybody was in any doubt before. Um, I think, though, that uh, what this has shown is that there is a desperate need for new thinking. Um Israel will predictably, I mean, you know, the announcement today that uh, of a full, complete siege of Gaza, no food, no electricity, no water, no nothing, um, was predictable. Um, this is the way the Israeli state has um, expectedly reacted to a- attacks on its territory and people. And, and Alison's reference and comparison to uh, the Holocaust is an indication of how people in Israel and um, uh, Jews worldwide will be thinking about mm. this. And that's a terrible, terrible thing for them to be um, living through uh, today. Um, and as you say, nobody is unaffected by it. Um, I would think that in the short term or the immediate term anyway, that Israel is basically being given carte blanche um, to uh, defend itself. Uh, It's the basic premise of any state that it defends itself. It's how it defends itself and how long it defends itself in that way that I think will be the question. And um, there has to be some, as I said, new thinking, working towards a political solution because the violence just doesn't work. Charles, there have also been comparisons drawn to September 11th, uh, the Al-Qaeda attacks on the United States. Uh, it's not a perfect comparison. These these comparisons never are. In fact, you could argue that certainly in scale of, as we know of at least, uh, deaths and injuries to population of the country, this is actually worse. But there is a similarity in that 9-11 was embraced by certain factions in the United States and the United Kingdom as an opportunity to remake the Middle East. Um, if that is the opportunity that Netanyahu is determined to seize, are there lessons he could perhaps draw uh, from that about what to do and what not to do? Well, um, Netanyahu, as Alison said in her remarks just a moment or two ago, uh, you know, and Netanyahu has had the opportunity to do that over the past 10 years. Mm. Um, Some of the directions that he's been taking Israel in may have been drivers of what Hamas has has done over the weekend in the first place. Um, But really, um, you know, what Netanyahu needed to do was he needed to, I think as Lynn has pointed out, um, you know, he needed to do something domestically. 
Um, and he needed to resolve what's going on with Hezbollah in the north, what's going on in the West Bank, and what's going on with Gaza. Um, and, you know, the Abraham Accords were a step in the right direction, and maybe the Saudi rapprochement was a step in the right direction. Um, those have not, you know, his, his new allies in the UAE and Bahrain and, and Morocco um, have really not come to his rescue now. Um, and so that reworking of the Middle East with the U.S. as its handmaiden hasn't really stood up. Um, the transformation that he thought he would have in hand in an anti-Iranian alliance with Saudi Arabia, um, that is now completely um, laid to waste. Um, you know, he had his time. Um, and, and again, the, the Allison's remarks, at, uh, you know, at the beginning of the broadcast are extremely discouraging because here is a nation that is meant to sort of rally around the flag and rally around its leadership at a time like this. And they're not. Um, the one thing that they're rallying around is the most important Israeli institution, and that's the army. But they seem to be leaving Netanyahu and the prime minister's office out of this patriotic surge. Um, and moreover, he's back to his usual tricks. He's playing politics. He's playing it with the left. He's playing with the right. The right and left are playing it against each other. That's all extremely discouraging in a moment like this. Just finally on this one, Lynn, and for all that Netanyahu is cautioning uh, both Israelis and Hamas alike to be braced for a long conflict, is the reality not that Israel, in the interest of preserving such diplomatic capital as it now has, and also in the interest of preserving its economy and making it look like it is still an attractive place to outside investors, dare I say tourists, does Israel actually need to get this done, whatever it's going to do, quite quickly? I think it needs change. I, th I think it needs, it, it's not a, a case of more of the same. We'll keep the tourists coming. We'll keep um, it at the top of everybody's uh, senses of what a great uh, producer of, uh, of uh, technology it is. Now it is a war zone and a war zone with a, with a lost uh, prime minister who has a deep, deep fail um, to his name. Um, he cannot eradicate that. Uh, so um, I, I think that if Netanyahu is like is going to survive, which I doubt that he will survive in the in the uh, near term, um, I don't think that there's very many days left for him. Um, but uh, I think we'll see him flail um, uh, politically, and that there will be a cry from ordinary Israeli people um, for change. Well, we will, of course, be covering developments in Israel and Gaza across all our shows on Monocle Radio this week. But for now, we will look elsewhere. Specifically, we will look at perennially luckless Afghanistan, where at least a thousand people died in an earthquake which struck Herat province on Saturday. While Afghanistan is well used to earthquakes, it remains a stranger to the kind of emergency response, basic infrastructure and building regulations associated with more competently governed jurisdictions. The Taliban, since taking control of the country two years ago have been more or less content to leave such things to the NGOs still struggling to operate in the country. Um, Lynn, this is a country you reported from extensively and know well. I think I'm right in saying that I'm not really understating the Taliban's indifference to basic governance there, am I? <laughs> 
Um, sorry to scoff. Um, uh, no. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a huge earthquake almost exactly a year ago on the other side of the uh, of the country. Uh, this is earthquake country. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, tens of thousands of people were injured and made homeless and thousands died. And yet they have learned nothing. I, I have uh, friends who work in the Indigenous uh, charity sector, one of whom told me uh, today that the uh, Taliban prevented the international organisations from moving towards the earthquake zone um, on Saturday for hours and hours, the most crucial time when people uh, who are buried under rubble may still be alive. Um, they they are nowhere to be seen um, in the rescue effort since, I'm being told, and it falls yet again to the internationals, to the IOM, to the WFP, to UNICEF, to organisations that uh, in their, um, pres- their presence in Afghanistan really entails in most places outside of Kabul stockpiling of uh, tents, emer- emergency medical equipment, high-protein biscuits um, and ambulances so that when something does happen, because it always does, they can get there. People are being dug out of the rubble uh, with bare hands. It's a terrible, terrible situation and the pictures on social media that we're getting show um, entire villages just utterly destroyed. No building regulations there. These are these are houses and compounds made of mud and they just disappear. Just to follow that up, Lynn, even if outside players were minded to help, um, not just the NGOs operating in the country, how actually possible is it to do that? How welcoming are the Taliban to offers of assistance? And if they're not welcoming, why not? Well, in the the tragedy that happened last year in Khost, uh, close to the Pakistan mm. border, the Taliban um, also prevented, um, were obstructive to um, help going in. They wanted to show that they could do it themselves. They can't do anything themselves because they don't have the capacity. Um what they did was use it as a way of uh, raising money. And uh, it's well documented, uh, not only by me, but mainly by me over the past couple of years, that they steal um, a lot of the aid that goes in. They steal cash, they steal food, they distribute aid uh, to their own followers because um, uh, they need to keep their followers, they're not popular. So um, trying to get stuff in, you know, the international community and, and major donors are not putting in the money even that they have pledged because they are very wary of the Taliban's um, uh, predilection for theft. Uh, Charles, Disaster preparedness is a a difficult area, I think, for the politics of even, or the politicians rather, of even fortunate and wealthy countries, isn't it? Because it's it's, it's not especially sexy. It's one of those things where you spend a lot of money in the hope that you will never actually have to use any of the stuff that you've spent the money on. Therefore, it's quite easy to find reasons not to do it. That's absolutely right. We live in a time when state capacity um, for any sort of response to disruption but particularly disruption that comes from natural disasters, whether it's fires, floods, or earthquake, or other sort of climate-driven events, are absolutely stretched to the maximum. Um, And you can see even in developed countries um, where the response to natural disasters is incredibly slow, ineffective, 
bureaucratic uh, and, and suboptimal, even in, in highly developed markets. And, you know, on the subject of building standards and, and, and earthquakes, you have countries that actually shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to these sorts of things. And that's Turkey, for example, in the February earthquake of this year, where, um, you know, the administration allowed the construction of entire towns and apartment complexes um, without any regard for Turkey's own um, mm. earthquake building standards. And when, and when the big one, as you say, you know, as you call it, comes, um, they were all flattened. Um, and so here's a country undoing its own capacity to respond to natural disasters. And I think that this is only going to get worse. Is there anything, though, that, that can be done about that, though? Because it, it is going to be that thing of politicians having to sell publics on the idea of we need to spend a lot of money and a lot of effort to prepare for something which may not actually ever happen. Right. And this is something that people don't want to spend money on. Um, and so what you do is you turn, in some cases, to the private sector. And the private sector says, fine, we'll save up the money and we'll come and rescue you. You'll have to pay something called a premium and you're going to have to renew do it every year, but we'll sort this out for you. We'll take the risk off the public sector. The problem is that the private sector now is also retreating from this business, and that is you can't get flood insurance in Florida. You can't get fire insurance in California. Um, nobody public sector or private sector wants to shoulder this burden going forward. Hey, is there also a thing, just finally on this, Lynn, and Afghanistan may be an extreme example of this, in which that you can kind of get away with not spending on this stuff and not preparing for this stuff, because people, I think, all over the world are kind of fatalistic about natural disasters. I mean, we even see, look, in the country where we come from, we have natural disasters. They're mostly fires and floods, but Australians usually react to them by going, ah, well, what do you going to do. Uh, it, it happens here. Whereas a lot of the time, uh, much more so in Afghanistan than in Australia, people die from natural disasters, not because of the natural disaster, but because of bad governance. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, I uh, covered the 2008 earthquake in Sichuan in southwestern China, mm. and it was the same thing. Um, uh, corrupt uh, officials allowed the construction of uh, very poor quality buildings, and schools collapsed with hundreds of children in them. And it was just the most tragic and heartbreaking thing uh, up, you know, to that time that I had ever witnessed. And uh, people got angry, and when they're angry, then they they take out their anger on the people who are supposed to be there um, with the one job uh, to keep them safe. And uh, I think that um, even in the world that we're living in now with the climate change um, leading to fires and floods that can't be insured and, you know, we're all going to face them, maybe it's time that people demanded of the, the people that they pay, as we do through our taxes, um, uh, that they do the job that they're paid to do. Well, on a related note, uh, next year we'll certainly see a presidential election in the United States and almost certainly a general election in the United Kingdom, unless Prime Minister Rishi Sunak goes full fingernails in the doorframe in the hope that his luck changes. What is more or less equally inevitable is that both elections will be dominated by the issue of migration and that wretchedly little of that debate will be conducted in good faith with good information or result in good ideas. Elsewhere as well, migration is being more or less openly weaponised countries, including but not limited to Turkey, Pakistan and Belarus, having recently used migrants and migration as a coercive diplomatic tool. Um, 
Charles, first of all, we we had the Tory conference uh, last weekend, uh, possibly their last one before a general election. Uh, Migration, it's fair to say, did come up. Uh, What what did you make of the the tone they generally took? Uh, Pretty nasty to be honest with you. I mean, these these references to, you know, hurricanes or tsunamis or other sort of weather-borne events of, of people being blown into the United Kingdom um, paints a very hostile picture uh, towards migration and towards refugees. And um, even some Tories, the more progressive, if you could say, or the more centrist um, Tories were saying, this is making us sound like the nasty party again. Uh, I mean, Lynn, it's not unique to the United Kingdom, of course. We hear a lot of this in the United States and in Australia. And and obviously here in the UK, here we are, three foreigners who've come over here uh, and are hosting all their current affairs podcasts, um, etc. But what interests me is, is why... And I'd be interested, especially in what you think in terms of Australia, why the anti-immigration thing still works in a country such as Australia or indeed the United States or the United Kingdom, where almost everybody knows actual migrants, works with them, is friends with them and knows them to be perfectly reasonable people. And yet you can always stir up fears of the ones who aren't here yet. Um, I I think of it as a deflection from political incompetence. Um, When you have uh, the divides between the haves and the have-nots widening to the extent that most ordinary people are really struggling, especially Mm. now we've got a a cost of living crisis, inflation is up, um, supermarkets are putting trackers on their their stakes. I mean, it's just the most... um, sudden and difficult to cope with situation for people, many people who were living paycheck to paycheck anyway, and that's certainly also true of the United States. Um, you can deflect the uh, the blame for a, a, a lack of good governance onto um, the other. And all of the language that we hear is about otherizing people who aren't among who aren't us, um, and they're not just called tsunamis and waves. They're called um, cockroaches and rats and terrible, terrible dehumanising things. So that that makes it okay for um, people to blame their problems on people who aren't human like them. You know, in America. Um, uh, the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, wrote an, an op-ed in the New York Times a month or so ago in which he reminded people who would read it um, that that country was built on immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, this country as well, our country, yours Certainly. and mine, Andrew, um, very many countries rely on immigrants, whether they admit it or not, to do the jobs that they don't want to do and to keep things turning over. Um, I find it appalling and shameful um, the way other human beings are dehumanised. And it also deflects from the fact that they're over here, largely because we were over there. <laughs> um, Charles, there is a, a question which I know I've asked various panellists before and, and does relate to governance. And when I think, when I frame it particularly in the context of the United Kingdom, where it's obviously extremely easy uh, to ramp up fears of particular groups of immigra- immigrants, 
But what I wonder is, is it immigration and immigrants people dislike or are uncomfortable with, or is it the appearance of disorder and chaos and that, that there's nobody in charge and nobody is checking anything and it's a total free-for-all? Because my argument in favour, I guess, of the, the British public's much-vaunted tolerance in that respect is that in the last few years, roughly 160,000 people from Hong Kong uh, have moved to the United Kingdom. Nobody cares. It's just not a thing. And because they came here on B no visas, all forms filled in, all boxes ticked, I's dotted, T's crossed, etc. I don't think you could make an issue out of it if you tried. I think the two issues are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, and I think, you know, to Lynn's argument or to Lynn's very valid point, it's not an argument, she's, she's right. Um, to what Lynn said, what Lynn has said about othering people, um, there are constituents in the UK and around the world who really don't much fancy sort of living around people who look and sound and, 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 and act differently than they do. And, and I think that that is part of what's happening in the UK as, as tolerant as it is of new arrivals here on the shore, including all of us who aren't necessarily new, but who've been here for a while. And in fact, we do have, um, you know, a, a prime minister and um, an interior minister of, of foreign extraction. But I think what happened, I think your second point is, is, is the more prominent one. And that is that this is supposed to be some sort of litmus test of the efficacy of government. And borders are one of those emotive things, especially when we live in a world now when, you know, contrary to anticipation and to expectations, we thought borders were going to go away. Mm. Um, this is a country now that has very firmly tried to reestablish its borders. And it's a word that starts with B that we don't necessarily need to raise here. Um, but um, this is supposed to be a litmus test of the effectiveness of government. It's supposed to be the effectiveness of a litmus, the test of, of effectiveness of a government that's been in for 13 years. Um, and you also have an opposition party that takes every opportunity it can to politicize this issue. And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. It is a political issue. But they're doing everything they can to undermine the government's position on this issue. Uh, and the public is picking that up. Just finally on this, Lynn, and it was a refrain that I picked up at the Tory conference, uh, and you may have noticed it yourself, variations on the theme, which will sound familiar to Australians, that we will decide who comes here and the circumstances in which they come. Uh, that was the line taken by a conservative prime minister of Australia, John Howard, not a notable enthusiast uh, for immigration, at least not overtly. But if if we remove that from any uh, emotional or political attachments um, and liberate it from any suppositions of bad faith, is that actually an unreasonable thing for a sovereign state to declare? I don't think it's unreasonable. I think the way it's gone about is mm. unre is is unreasonable. Um, but you you cannot. This is an island. Australia is an island. When any country that has a coastline is is vulnerable to people arriving in boats, big or small, um, I think that's just an inevitability in the world that we're living in and um, it's going to continue no matter what the rhetoric around it is. Um, but, you know, in America and here, uh, one of the things that could be changed immediately to ameliorate the, uh, the, the public um, dislike of financially supporting uh, to the tune of billions of dollars in America and pounds here um, um, incomers is let them work 
people aren't allowed to work when they arrive here. They they didn't get up um, one morning and say, I know, I think I'll walk through a few countries uh, with my children and get on a boat that's over, that might sink um, uh, with a faulty uh, life jacket on after paying some rat bag, people smuggler, uh, um, everything that I have, um, and then go and get stuck on a boat or, a you know, uh, in a hostel. And people don't choose to do that. They do it for a reason and they leave lives where they were working and they were looking after themselves. That's what they want to do. Let them work. Let them look after themselves. Give them dignity and then let them become a part of the society. Lynn O'Donnell and Charles Hecker, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, Poland votes on Sunday in a parliamentary election being billed by all sides as the most important in the country's modern history. Granted that this is the kind of thing often said by all protagonists in any election anywhere, but in this instance it is a makeable case, as polls decide whether to award a third consecutive term to the Law and Justice Party, whether despite or because of its drift into populist authoritarianism. Well, earlier I spoke to Yaroslav Koish, editor-in-chief of Kulturna Liberalna and author of the new book, The New Politics of Poland, A Case of Post-Traumatic Sovereignty. I began by asking Yaroslav how ugly this election campaign had been. Well, it is. In fact, it's an ongoing process that uh, what you see is unprecedented, not according to my standards, but according to the public opinion service, unprecedented level of brutality, because in fact, it looks like there, there are no limits. One could say that, well, eventually, we all tend to see more or less the same thing everywhere. But there is an important difference for us, namely, the government is not really condemning incidents that we are seeing and this changes everything i mean sometimes a small gesture shows that there is a kind of behavior that is not going to be tolerated anymore but this is not the case it's like uh, sometimes the statements are ambiguous unclear blurred and therefore it looks like oh we could go on with some kinds of behavior today we are going to have a tv debate sort of Already, the opposition is afraid that there are going to be incidents provoked by a mob supporting the government. So it's just to give you an impression of what we have here. Are you concerned then that if the Law and Justice Party do win this election or are at least in a position to form another government after this election, that we we have not seen the end of their rightward authoritarian drift? Could this still get noticeably more extreme than it already is? It could, and we know it (laughs) all too well, because law and justice is not as effective as uh, the Hungarian populists. Orban has been in power longer. He has really dismantled democracy, and uh, he, he acted in a more effective way. So it means that there is still a path to be followed by Polish populists. What it means in practice is to see... The paradox, something that may sound like a paradox, but it's something that could be observed in practice, namely that we have an illiberal regime in a liberal European Union. And this is a huge experiment. I I believe that in many respects, we are still using an old software to trying to understand what's going on, whereas we need a, a brand new software. I would just give you one example. In fact, we are very far from falsifying uh, elections because that's the old software. No one is going to add new pieces of paper to the ballot boxes. It's done. It's being done differently. We know it from mm. Hungary. 
We know it from Turkey. In fact, we don't try to rig elections. We do rig the election campaigns. This is something absolutely new because it means that there is the, the campaigns are not fair at all. And there is not just usual type of uh, inequality that you have between political players, parties, and so on. It's just a huge discrepancy between two sides because uh, the national populists simply took over the state's resources and they are using them as they wish. So the question is, could you win against populists in power? I did want to ask, though, about where you see the continuing appeal of uh, law and justice coming from, because they do clearly have a constituency. They do have people who vote for them. Now, I was wondering if you could frame that within the context of what you talk about in your book as, as post-traumatic sovereignty, this idea that nationalism grows out uh, of, I guess, a, a kind of existential uncertainty. There is a certain uh, special, peculiar flavor to Eastern and Central Europe. The most political commandment of countries like Poland or the Baltic states is don't be wiped off the map again. From A to Z, uh, this is like the most important political uh, commandment in politics for the opposition and for those who are in power. It's a traumatic experience to be wiped off the map. Usually it involved violence, war, terror, all that uh, sort of unpleasant uh, events. And therefore the nations that suffered this, they have enshrined these negative experiences in their collective identity. This became a political DNA and it influences current politics. So uh, almost everyone defends sovereignty rightly or wrongly, that's not really the point. Uh, but the right and the far right, they do it with redoubled force. I mean, that wasn't always the case in Poland, though, because obviously we see Donald Tusk, uh, an absolute paragon of European liberalism, is trying to get back the job he once held. Does it strike you that the trajectory Poland now appears to be on was inevitable? Could it have been different? You know, but when I'm talking about the post-traumatic sovereignty in Poland and its influence over politics, it means that it's just a point of departure. Then you could interpret it in different ways. And here is the main political dividing line, because what it means for the government. The government would like to defend Polish sovereignty to the east and to the west, whereas the opposition namely Donald Tusk, uh, he would like to defend Polish sovereignty to the east only because he believes that we should somehow take into consideration the changes in Europe. We should take into consideration what we have learned from the Cold War era. And here we, we see another difference because what it means, the sovereignty is a huge, huge term that you could you know, put a lot of things into it. And for the uh, nationalist populists in power, it's interesting, extremely interesting to see that for them, the point of reference, the political point of reference is the pre-war Poland. You know, this the, the peak mm. of sovereignty. I'm not going to go into the details, but just to show you the difference between uh, the government and the opposition, for the opposition, the point of reference is the post-1989 state of affairs, namely to continue what we had before 2015. It's interesting to see that whatever, wherever we take a look, it means that everyone is a bit nostalgic about the past. 
That was Yaroslav Koish, author of the new book, The New Politics of Poland, a case a case, rather, of post-traumatic sovereignty. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Charles Hecker and Lynn O'Donnell, uh, also to Alison Kaplan-Sommer at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Paige Reynolds and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.